should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, where we bring people together from different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and bring race to the people. I'm excited today about my two guests. I have Michelle Kim and Nina Friedman, and we're gonna be talking about millennial myths on racism and Pocahontas by Donald Trump. So I wanna start by having each by having Michelle and Nina each introduce themselves. And um, Nina and Michelle, when you introduce yourself, would you describe yourself because people who are our listeners can't see you. So let's start with you, Michelle. All right, hi everybody. My name is Michelle Kim, the co-founder and CEO of a company called Awaken. We provide a compassionate space for uncomfortable conversations at uh, workplaces and different organizations, typically around topics around uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, since you can't see me, I am an Asian American. I immigrated to the States when I was 12 from South Korea, and I uh, lived in San Diego briefly and moved to the Bay Area about 10 years ago. Um, I am uh, a queer woman of color. I identify as queer femme, bisexual, um, and I'm a proud immigrant of a low-income family member. And you are a millennial, right? I am a millennial. <laughs> I'm a millennial. I'm 29. Does that make you an older millennial? I think so, a little bit. Well, okay. I think the range is 18 to 35, I believe. Oh, okay. All right, just checking. Okay, <laughs> now my next guest, Nina. Thank you for clearing up what a millennial is because I've been incredibly confused about it. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. My name is Nina Friedman. I am born and raised... Bay Area, Berkeley, um, to be exact. And I am the daughter of two wonderful, loving mothers, which I feel like is incredibly important if you know who I am. Um, I currently work in the restaurant industry to pay the bills, but I am dedicated to all things reproductive justice related. Um, I'm currently involved specifically with a focus on abortion support. Um, so post-abortion and during, I'm an abortion doula, and I'm a counselor on the nationwide after-abortion talk line. Um, and I am, I keep wanting to say 23, but I'm recently 24. So much of a difference, apparently, <laughs> in this small window that is our 20s. Um, and I'm white. I can't believe I didn't say that. White Jewish, 5'3", queer, <laughs> um, and very excited to be here. Well, thank you. So as you know, I am a diversity and inclusion strategy consultant. I do a lot of work around dialogue, um, around creating inclusive cultures and generations. I often hear from people, mostly older people, who tell me, mostly older people, mostly white, but not all, who tell me that Millennials don't need to hear about diversity and don't need to talk about race because they are all really open to issues of sexual orientation, race, anything to do with diversity. Have you two heard that and is it true? Yes, I have heard that, um, and I would say it is not true <laughs> that millennials don't need to talk about race. Um, I think the, the misconception stems from the fact that millennials are seen as more, and I think in fact are more ethnically, ethnically and racially diverse than other generations. 
Um, but that proportion of diversity that exists in um, our generation doesn't necessarily mean that people are aware or socially conscious and don't need education around um, diversity and inclusion. What do you say, Nina? Well, I don't talk to older people. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm absolutely kidding. Um, I, Thank you. I I'll ignore you next I, time I see you. I completely disagree with that. I, I agree with what you had to say, Michelle, that we just, at least in my own immediate circle of friends and the way in which I see um, older generations, like having grown up in an urban environment, especially that of the Bay Area, I think you're just exposed to a lot more rhetoric um, and conversations around around diversity and around issues um, of racial discrimination and just kind of the history of the U.S. in a way that's like real, you know, like Howard Zinn versus McGraw-Hill. Um, but I don't think, I don't think that there is like a lack or I, I don't think that there's, there's definitely a need for conversation around race. And, you know, I've seen, heard young people too tell me, oh, now let me just say, most of these are young white people who say, we don't, not that there's anything against a young white person, but oftentimes people will say, yeah, we don't need that. We're mm -hmm. all cool. So my next, well, two things. One is when you hear about bullying, I always say to people, so who's bullying young people? Other young people. 65-year-old men are not coming to the schools to bully young people. And what about the march in Charlottesville? Did you see the pictures? Mm -hmm. How old were those people? Most of those people marching? Yeah, they looked like they were in their twenties to me. I didn't see a whole lot of old people marching because maybe they couldn't have marched. I don't know. Whatever was happening, they weren't there. Yeah. So my next question is, why is it important that millennials do talk about race? So I, I think that there's a um, different definition of what racism looks like for different people. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people think when they hear the term racist or racism, what they think of is people in white hoods, right? They think of the KKK. They don't really think about the subtlety that racism can bring out when people are interacting with each other in the workplace or in schools. And, you know, I think that's across generations. I think millennials face the same issues that are, you know, former generations faced and that are still being experienced by people of color, by people who are um, LGBTQ. Like you said, uh, people who are in school, they still experience bullying, right? LGBTQ students still face a lot of suicide um, threats and uh, bullying in school. So I think these problems still exist. It's that people have uh, in their minds differentiated what racism really looks like and that they are you know, there are people who commit racism who don't look like me. So of course, I'm not racist, um, but they don't recognize that there are a lot of subtle things that they might be doing that are perpetrating, um, perpetuating harm. And even beyond, <coughs> even, even beyond talking about racism, just talking about race, just having mm -hmm. a conversation about race, talking about differences, do we need to have that conversation? Absolutely. I think there's, it's interesting that you brought up Charlottesville. This is Nina talking, yeah. It's interesting that you brought up Charlottesville as like the example of young people who are, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but like clearly racist. <laughs> um, no, they're fine young people. Right, right. But um, yeah, and to go off of what you were saying, Michelle, like I think those microaggressions, like the term that yeah. we use, are so prevalent, especially amongst young white people. And like, as a young white person, <laughs> on behalf of all young white people, no, but I think like you, you have to really start unpacking your own identity before you can start noticing the things mm -hmm. that you do to perpetuate racism in these ways that are so subtle, like so covert and so ingrained in us. Um, and I think that that starts with like examining your own privileges. Because I know like as a young queer white person, who often finds myself in queer white spaces, there's all of this, like, what I like to call sinking into your intersections mm -hmm. of being like, no, 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 I'm queer. Like, it's fine, I'm queer. So, mm -hmm. like, actually, that's the oppression that I experience versus being like, actually, I'm really privileged in these ways that my whiteness allows me to, like, just, I feel like, at least in my own experience, like, my whiteness trumps, hate that I use that word, but, like, trumps all in terms of the oppressions that I experience. Um, but I forget what your question was exactly. Well, even if, if, even if there was no racism, let's just oh, pretend there's no racism. <laughs> just pretend there's no racism. 
can would it them? still <laughs> be important to be willing to talk or be interested in talking about race? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's like just on the basis. So I was at work yesterday in the restaurant and I'm telling people about this, this thing that we're doing today about this conversation. They're like, wait, what? Everyday conversation about race? And it just elicits such discomfort immediately. But it's like, I want to know, I think there's, I don't know what the associations are specifically around the word race, but I feel like it's like understanding a person's social cultural background, you know? Like, I only know what I experienced in my own daughter of a crazy Jewish New Yorker. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's impossible for us to form genuine, authentic human connections unless we truly understand each other. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's, it's a meaningless exercise to, you know, pretend that there is no racism because there clearly is. And the way that we experience the world is so much dictated by who we are and how mm-hmm. we're identified by ourselves and by other people. So, you know, I think understanding that at the core and doing our own work, like you said, Nina, I think that's really, really important. Just making this learning about racism and all the things that are happening in our world personally making that a personal learning experience to really understand my experiences and being able to name that and to use that as a way to create more empathy for understanding other people's experiences, I think is hugely important. Yes, because I'll talk about race with I'll talk about race with anybody anywhere. I'm comfortable doing it. But it's taken me it took me a while and I think that the more we talk about it, the more comfortable mm-hmm. we'll get the more we could appreciate people's differences and understand why they do what they do. Who are these people? Whoever these people are. What's, and you talked about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important. You wanted to say something, Nina. Um, uh, well, I was just going to say it's interesting that you, like, and well, in direct response to what you just said, I think it's about, like, we haven't learned the language in which to talk about race in a way that's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the words or the language, and let the record show the English language is very limiting, but... If you don't have the language in which to talk about something, it becomes all the more challenging. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. And also, I think there's sometimes people fall back on whatever they think they should be saying to note that they are progressive and they are liberal, um, what have you. And uh, there's not a true understanding of the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as as a society, we need to learn how to communicate. Um, openly, and mm-hmm. it, this is something that we talked about Sima, before, uh, where we can create a space where people can ask those questions that they're too scared to ask, and that people have both compassion and criticality to engage in a conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to present this scenario, then we're going to break. Imagine this. You are you're an African-American young man. I'm telling you because this is a true story. I've heard it many times, too. And you're in a school that's mostly white. You hang around with your white friends. And everybody thinks, including you, that everybody is cool. You don't need to have the conversation about race. Then somebody makes a racist joke. Everybody laughs. You're feeling really uncomfortable. And everybody says, hey, don't you think it's funny? And you're scared. You don't even know what to say. And, and so what happens, to, what happens to you? You're that young black kid or, or a person of color, whatever it is, in this situation. What, I just want you to think about this. What are the consequences? Because not talking about it has a lot of consequences for people and not recognizing. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll be back. This is Sima, The Inclusionist, with Michelle Kim and Nina Friedman. When we come back from commercial break, we're going to continue talking about about. Uh, Millennials and race, but we're going to talk to Michelle and we're going to talk to Nina about their personal experiences. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima, the inclusionist, back from commercial break with my guests, Michelle Kim and Nina Friedman. And before the break, we were talking about millennial myths that millennials don't need to talk about race or diversity because they're all open. Now, we already disproved that myth, didn't we? <laughs> and my next question to both of you, when did you first become aware of race? So, okay, <laughs> who wants to go first? Gosh, I, uh, it's so, I feel like I've thought about this question so much, and it's been like, it's, I've been approached with it so many times in like various or any story or related to it. Right, right, right. But it's like I just I have this very specific memory that is so present, and I feel like spaces that I've been in with friend, like with black friends who are talking about their hair and talking about how there's like this romanticization around like black people's hair or around like people, white people coming up to black people on the street and wanting to touch their hair um, that is just not okay. And I have this memory of being, I must have been like five or six, and it was like knocker balls were the shit. I don't know if you all know what knocker balls look like, but they're like a little hair, they're like a hair thing to wear. And all of my friends were like mixed or black and they had hair that would allow for their knocker balls to stay in their hair if they just put it around. And I remember not it not working in my hair and being like, why is this? Which is such a crazy, like, I don't know why that's the memory that stands out to me. But I remember being like, oh, I'm not, we're not, like, the same in that way. Yeah, I don't think it's crazy. And also, I remember you went to a preschool. You went to Nia House, mm-hmm. which was a multi-culty preschool. And I think it made a difference because people talked about it all the time. Yeah. You didn't even know you were talking about it, but people talked about it. And so then you had an even deeper awareness later on. Michelle. Um, So I was born and raised in South Korea where there's very little diversity. (laughs) Everybody looks like me. um, Everybody's Korean. And so I think I really became aware of race and and racism uh, when I immigrated to the States when I was 12. And really it was a couple different incidents where uh, I was treated very differently in school uh, by other kids. Uh, when they were talking to me, they would purposely slow down. I remember <laughs> this one kid, um, and you know, granted, I didn't know English, but one kid came up to me and and held up a banana and said, "Do you know what this is? It's called banana." <laughs> oh my God. And uh, just so you know, banana is called banana in Korean too. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I remember just giving him a middle finger because I, I knew that's, yes. that's, yes. that's yes. a thing. Yeah, I knew yes. that. Um, 
And I also remember my dad, who came here before me, um, who wanted to pave the way, and, and he was undocumented for a very long time. And um, I remember him being treated differently by adults. And I remember thinking, gee, why, why are people so rude to my dad, who is hardworking, mm -hmm. who is so kind and warm? And I just remember thinking that, you know, there must be something that... Um, that I need, I not, I may not be understanding here. That I need to quickly get get um, adapted to. Thank you, thank you both. My next question for both of you is: How has race, just race in general, and your race, and of course, racism, but talking about all three, how have they impacted your life, and how do you live your life? based on race. Not that that's your whole life. I'm not, I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that's the whole life, but we all have lots of different parts and all those different parts make up who we are and what we do. So, so talk. Yeah, I think um, race and ethnicity, I think of a little bit differently, right? And, mm -hmm. and for me, my ethnic background of being a Korean American, that culture, the cultural shift from being a, a Korean born Korea a bo Korean person born in Korea and immigrating to the states and having that immigrant experience for me um, has really fundamentally shaped who I am and how I view the world and how I experience the world. I think being Asian um, in the workplace and in America also ha has granted me certain pathways that I think for certain people of color, especially you know African-American, black and brown folks, um, don't necessarily have, right? So I think there is a really interesting balance and nuance that I've experienced because of my race and, and my ethnicity. So it's, it's really tough to pinpoint exactly this is what happened because of my race, but I know that my experience was very largely impacted by my identities, um, race, gender, all of all of those things. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that 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 insight and that self awareness. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for me always to be examining the ways in which I experience daily privileges. Um, and I'm I don't know if you all are familiar with the Peggy McIntosh unpacking the white privilege knapsack. Sima's literally gagging at this, but <laughs> she didn't want anyone to know, but <laughs> could be edited out. <laughs> um, but it just it's just a list, basically, for those of you who don't know, it's like a list of the daily privileges that this white woman experiences. Like, I can buy Band-Aids that look like my skin tone, or like, I cannot be questioned when I walk around a store. Um, and there are things that like, because I'm experiencing these daily privileges, I often forget. And I think it's important to be remembering these things mm on my own, not only when I'm with friends of color and I'm witnessing like, oh shit, I'm being treated, like you're being treated differently than I am. It's like, I should be, I should be thinking about these things all the time. Um, and I think like bringing up the intersection of like race and gender, like I'm white, which is important, but I'm also a woman. And I think that plays a very large role in like how I've come to know the world. No, I think, I think, I think it is important as, I might have my own intersectionalities, and as a white person, I think it's important to always, I mean, I don't walk around all day thinking, oh, well, I'm crossing the street. What if I was a black person crossing the street? Would I still get across the street? But, right. but to, be aware, to be aware of who I am, who I am in the world, also how I'm seen, and to be aware of other people's, other people's situation. One of, one of my guests on the show a uh, few episodes back, my friend Ceci Alfonso, who's Afro-Cuban, she's, and she's black, she was talking about, we were talking about white privilege, and she said, I don't want you to give up your privilege, but because when it's raining out, and it's in New York, and I'm waiting for a cab, and no one's going to stop, and you're my white friend, you're a white person walking <laughs> by, I want you to stop and get me a cab. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and oftentimes, how many times have you heard... I don't know how many times you've heard. I know how many times I've heard. I can't even count. When we're talking about, say, a black person being stopped by the police just for WWB walking while black or, or DW driving while black. And oftentimes 
I'll, I'll hear a white person say, well, if you had just been not breaking the law or all you have to do is just follow instructions and nothing will happen or the police won't stop me and nothing happened. So what do you say when you hear that kind of stuff? I think that's, once again, people not understanding the systematic ways mm -hmm. in which people are oppressed and, and racism plays out in society. So just because you don't experience it personally, that doesn't mean that's how the world works. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, that the driving while black, Flan uh, Philando Castile, he was stopped mm -hmm. 49 times before he was finally killed, he was killed. by mm -hmm. a cop in 13 years. So when we look at these numbers, they're not just personal responsibility. They're not just, you know, personal excuses or exceptions, right? These are, you know, deeply ingrained, systematic, institutionalized process of really marginalizing people who are different. Yeah. I mean, especially just talking about, like, the police and black folks, it's so so upsetting and so obvious and so rooted like in the history of this country. I, a friend and I, I think it was like in 2014 when there was, it was like Black Lives Matter was really picking up and there was so much police brutality that was happening. It was like literally a week didn't go by without a black body being killed by, by a police officer. Um, and we were like, okay, literally any time that we see a person of color being pulled over, being talked to by a cop. Like we will make a point to stand and watch what happens, like just as a witness. And it's crazy because once you start to put that in your in your mind frame, in your mind in like in your mind's awareness, you start to notice just how often that's happening. Like I'll be walking down in Berkeley like Telegraph Avenue. There's almost always someone who's being talked to, a homeless person or something, um, by a police officer. And they're almost always a person of color. And there have been multiple times when I've gone up and been like, is this, is this person bothering you? Like to the homeless, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. But it's just like that interruption, I think, is so shocking to a police officer who's had it so normalized that like this is what my job is. I, I think that's a really important um, conversation for all of us to have, especially around the conversation of privilege, mm -hmm. where when privilege doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? It's, it's, right, it's, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's it's something that you got unearned, right? The definition of privilege is that you didn't do anything for it. It's, it's, it's not your fault that you have privilege, you were born with it. But if you're aware of how you can actually use your privilege to provide additional access or protection for folks who don't have them, then that's a way to be an ally. Um, and I think that, that understanding of how to be an ally doesn't come mm -hmm. without you actually understanding what privileges you do have. We're gonna have to take a break for commercial, but I really, love what you said because I think and, and what you said too because I think that is the key mm -hmm. that if we are if we're not afraid to, to see race if we're not afraid to talk about race and we know that there are certain we'll call it advantages or external advantages that people of different skin color economics whatever have then if we really want to see change we have to be willing to speak up. We have to be willing to speak up. We have to be willing to educate other people. And, and I'm not saying to everybody listening, I'm not saying all police are racist. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I have a police lieutenant on my block who has a Black Lives Matter sign in front of her house. She's very cool. But what we are saying that there are some major issues that must be addressed that are systemic. So now we're gonna take a break. This is uh, Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist with my guests, Michelle Kim and Nina Friedman. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Pocahontas by Donald Trump. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima, the inclusionist, back from commercial break with my guests, Nina Friedman and Michelle Kim. And we were just talking about race, racism, the myth of the millennials, and now we're going to talk about Pocahontas. So what do I mean? When, I, when you hear me say Pocahontas by Donald Trump, what first comes to mind? I just, what happened I just this died. week? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> just, <laughs> should I well, let, let's, let's, Should we give a little bit of history? Donald Trump was presenting an award to the code breakers from World War, World War II who helped break the Nazi codes. And they were, and they, they were Navajo. And as he was giving, as he was presenting the award to them, he said, you people are really special, you people. You've been here longer than I have, but there's somebody in Congress who says she's been here longer than you. We call her Pocahontas. Talking about Elizabeth Warren. Was that a racial slur? Yes. Why? <laughs> Why? Because he insists it wasn't. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Sanders says it wasn't a racial slur. Trump says it wasn't a racial slur. Why is it a racial slur? Who decides what's a racial slur? Mm. Right? So I, I think there was a response by the indigenous community who, um, who responded to that comment. And, you know, I don't. I don't think that people would agree that it was. It wasn't um, negatively impacting the community that that he was referring to. And how did it start? Where did that Where did that Pocahontas come from from Donald Trump? Because apparently, somewhere in a yearbook, Elizabeth Warren, who had heard most of her life that her family had Cherokee ancestry, had included that in her yearbook. People who found out ran with it. They said that she had used it to get into, mm. into the university. Not true. They said she had used it for employment. Not true. They said she had used it for her advantage. Absolutely not true. And then they also said because she has blonde hair and blue eyes. Not true. That's not true, because I know, I know several Native American people who have blonde hair and blue eyes. So who decides what's, so then Trump, so Trump ran off and said calling her Pocahontas. Mm -hmm. Reaction. I, I mean, I hear it like the, I have such a gut, like disgusted reaction to this and just to him in general. It, it is visceral still a year later, but um, 
the two things in, in the way in which you're framing this that come up for me is like single storying. Like the only native person that he feels like he's probably ever known <laughs> is Pocahontas, who is a literal fictional character no. in a film. Or sorry, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about like the way in which Donald Trump knows yeah. you know, right. who Pocahontas is. He's like, I watched a movie about it when I was however old. You know, it's just... And then I also hear, like, this idea of, like, reverse racism coming up of Elizabeth Warren having made her way to where she is now because of her Native identity. Well, he said she was lying. What he did, he said basically was that she was lying, that she doesn't have any proof because there's no records of it. And um, Pocahontas, as, as the Native American families who were awarded said, Pocahontas was somebody who had an important place in American history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And therefore, the way that Trump was calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas was a racial slur. Mm-hmm. So since when do racists get to decide that their racist slurs are not racist slurs? Well, I think it, it really stems from his ignorance he probably doesn't know the history of Pocahontas mm-hmm. and you know and I, I you'd just, have to care first <laughs> right exactly. and just the fact that the the ceremony that he was hosting mm-hmm. was meant to honor and really recognize and acknowledge the contributions of these folks who 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 had such a vital role who played a vital role in World War II and in that moment to throw in some cheap joke mm-hmm. for him that Really, at the end of the day, he, he's threatened by Elizabeth Warren. He wants to put her down in any means mm-hmm. possible. But in that, to have insulted such a, a, an important history of our country, I, I, I just, it's mind-boggling, but not really, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I put it on my social media. I said, what can I say? Words fail me. Mm-hmm. You were talking about privilege. What kind of privilege is that, that somebody can make a racial slur, think it's okay, and then get annoyed when somebody tells them it's a racial slur? So what was your immediate reaction? When, when I heard that? Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts? I, I think, well, anger mm-hmm. and annoyance and also just the disappointment that now we're talking about Donald Trump yet again, instead Mm -hmm. of really talking about the importance of recognizing the efforts of the Navajo code talkers, Mm -hmm. um, and just the need for our nation to, again, practice building the muscle for having important conversations without um, getting defensive, and understanding the difference between intent versus impact, and why having when, when somebody makes a mistake, because we all make mistakes, yes. and mm-hmm. Donald Trump, God knows, has made many mistakes, mm-hmm. um, maybe intentionally, unintentionally, who knows. But when mistakes occur and people get called out, I don't think people are prepared to respond mm-hmm. in a way that keeps their dignity but acknowledges the harm that they've just caused and how to recover from that um, without you know denying that they just caused harm onto other people. I, I don't think people are prepared for that conversation, and we need to practice. We need to build that muscle because we're, we're not perfect, and we're all going to make mistakes, but no one's teaching us how to communicate in, in those instances. But do you feel like that acknowledgement is only possible if that person can acknowledge their own identities? Like if they can acknowledge the privileges that come with their own identity. I do, yeah. I think that's the foundational Mm -hmm. education that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said also about all of this focus then turning on him because it's happened countless times and it's so upsetting and so inappropriate. And I know I'm definitely a victim of falling privy to to that media rhetoric. Well, it makes me think then is our, our... Racial slurs can become even more normalized. And I also think that it was extreme, that's also extremely sexist. Mm -hmm. And my concern is why is there not even a bigger outcry? Mm. I think people are getting tired. I think people are 
being annoyed by the continued political conversations around race and in all different identity aspects. Um, and I think people who are afforded the, the luxury to turn off from these conversations because they don't have to deal with it if they don't, you know, they don't need to versus people who are living these experiences. I think there is a big divide that we need to bridge um, where people who are just waking up to the fact that, hey, our country is not post-racial. Mm -hmm. Our country is still very problematic in so many different ways um, since the election. I think people are just now waking up to this reality that so many people have been living in for a very long time. And there's this this tension between communities that have been involved in doing this work and trying to really mobilize people versus people who are just waking up, but then they are overwhelmed. They're tired, they're getting exhausted, and they're, they're pissed off, but they don't know what to do. Um, and so I think there's, there's a movement where I see people wanting to take a break, but very long break, <laughs> and not wanting to engage in important conversations because it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's not fun to talk about this stuff. Well, it's exhausting, and I think, like, I'm saying that as a white person. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of the times I see this conversation turn to communities of color of, like, how how do you respond to this? How do you, Like, what are you supposed to do in response to this? And it's like, well, yes, but no. The, the problem and the issue is how are white people going to step up in response to this? And for me, my fear is that it is exhausting, it is anger-inducing, and I'm already catching myself becoming numb to it, and I fear that it's being normalized in this way that is so perverse that we're not even realizing mm -hmm. like how much this normalization of this racist, biggest bigot who is literally a sexual assaulter is being normalized. Yeah. See, and what I saw when I watched the video, I saw a group of people, I saw somebody intentionally, unintentional, whatever it was, trying to steal the dignity mm -hmm. from a group of people who contributed to, over, to, 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 uh, contributed to the United States winning mm -hmm. in World War II. Mm -hmm. I also saw privilege at its max that somebody felt that they could say anything they wanted. Yes. And I also saw a bigger picture, too, that of how Native American people have historically been treated in this country. Yep. So looking at it from, just one last question, should it only be white people who speak out against racism? Should it only be white people who speak out against this slur? No, I, I don't think so. I think it's everybody can have a role in speaking out when they see something like this. Um, I do think that we, you know, it, to going back to the conversation about privilege mm -hmm. and what you were talking about, Nina, about just stepping in and when you see injustice play out in front of your eyes as a person with privileges and who are aware of those privileges that you have, I think there's a, a call to action being made to all people of privileges and especially white folks to step up, um, to call out injustices when they happen because they, they face materially less risks mm -hmm. compared to their people of color counterparts when they speak out in organizations, in society in general, there's just less risk that they face versus when people of color uh, step up and speak up. Absolutely. Yeah, because there has to be a we. I mean, I had a, a friend who's a person of color when when she heard what Trump said, she said, whew, glad that I wasn't the target. And she said, well, I don't, I don't think I want to say anything. And mm -hmm. I said, why not? Mm -hmm. Because we all have to support each other. We have to support mm -hmm. the, if we want support, we have to be able to be willing to support each other. And when one group is targeted, we all have to come together, mm -hmm. including the group that's targeted. So I just, any, any last word? We're getting ready to close the end of the sh Oh, no? Last break. Oh, last break. Okay. All right. Okay. So we've got to stop for commercial break. Come back. Hi. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people with... Michelle Kim and with Nina Friedman, and we've just been talking about Pocahontas by Trump. 
And we're going to stop for a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about our personal stories. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from commercial break. And today, my guests are still Michelle Kim and Nina Friedman. And we're talking about everyday conversations on race for everyday people to bring race to the people. And I would like to talk a little bit more about some personal stories. So my first, and you could answer any one of these questions. So you could just pick one. First is, when have you spoken up against racism? When have you spoken up in any way? Um, when have people spoken, when, when has someone spoken up for you and how would you like people to support you in any of your intersectionalities? I, I'll, gi I'll give you an example. For me, my late partner was African-American. And um, we were going to a cleaners in Oakland. We lived in Oakland. And they would put, like, these Christian things and Christian sayings in my clothes. So I'd pick up my clothes, and they would have, like, Christian sayings in them. And I told them, I said, Stop. I'm Jewish. I don't want Christian sayings. And I said, I have my own religion. And they kept on putting it in. So, but, there was, but the cleaners were like right across the street from our house. So my late partner, who was African-American, went across the street and said, she told you, stop putting those sayings in her clothes. She's Jewish. We will stop coming here if you do not stop. And I felt really supported. So... How about you? When have you spoken up? When has somebody spoken up for you? Or And what would you like people to do? Um, I, I, it's not, it's not a, a story like that for me. I, I have a story that I, I want to share. It's about my mom. Okay. Um, my mom moved to the States a few years ago, I think three years ago, from Korea. So it's a completely new life for her. Um, one day when she was coming home late at night, uh, unfortunately, she got mugged, mm. and um, it was by a black man, and in the process of her trying to protect her purse, she got uh, hit by him in the head, and she was absolutely traumatized. She had never been mugged before, um, let alone physically assaulted by a stranger at night um, by herself outside of her house, and she 
uh, after that, she had an experience where she would uh, she was walking down the street in the Tenderloin, and she saw a black man walk towards her. So what does she do? She crossed the street. And in that moment, she didn't realize what she was doing, right? She was just experiencing her trauma again, and she, she was acting on her impulse. And the black guy who was across the street saw that she walked across the street and called her out on it. And he said, why did you cross the street? I'm not a threat. And my mom was so embarrassed, and, but she didn't know what to do. She felt in that moment that she needed to protect herself. And in hearing these stories and having a conversation with my mom, do I think that my mom is a racist? No. But do I think that there needs to be a conversation to be had about racism that exists in this world and what that experience must have been like for that guy who, who was just walking down the street and experienced this microaggression by my mom? Yes, there needs to be that kind of conversation. So, so when I talk about racism, it's not even, it's, it's not simple, right? It's, it's in these little moments that we have opportunities to have conversations. So it's an ongoing conversation that I have with my mom around racism and how we unpack that and unlearn mm -hmm. what we just experienced. That could be really traumatizing and that could lead her to just generalize the entire population as, as you know, thugs and as threats to her well-being. It's, it's hard, but I think that it's these types of conversations that need to happen. And for me, turning into my own family and my own people and addressing it inward and really making sure that I am the, am the messenger who's doing that education and doing that emotional labor and not putting that on people who are already marginalized, who are doing a lot of labor in their day to day. I think that's really what I would ask of other people too, is that start with your own community Mm -hmm. and do that work within yourself and with people that you know. Well, I would like to suggest, too, because fear is very visceral. And, when, and the way that we get our ideas about people who are different are what we've heard, what we've seen in the media, if we've had one bad experience, that if your mother, and this is like research showed that people oftentimes will give up their fears and their stereotypes when they have positive contact. Mm -hmm. So I think just you telling your mother not to be afraid and talking about racism, that may not help her fear. But meeting some black people, particularly some black men, who she, who she can actually engage with as human beings, that stops people from being afraid of a whole group. Mm -hmm. So I think that it is a lot, and, and I think that that, that that fear is real. Like people talk about that all the time. Well. I never knew A, whatever it was. I always thought that they. Mm -hmm. And once they start meeting people, they it, it anchors differently. They're able to then see that person as just one person. And regarding the guy that said that to your mother, there's a book called uh, Whistling, Whistling Vivaldi. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm -mm. It's about stereotype threat. It's an excellent book. And what they talk about, when people are afraid of being stereotyped, they underperform. They act differently. It happens in school. It happens at work. But the, story, but the book was written by this guy who talked about, he was African-American, that when he would be walking down the street in Washington, D.C. at night, and he'd see a white woman, he would start whistling Vivaldi, because he would think, oh, then they won't be afraid of me. Mm. You know, why should he have to do that? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Nina, how about you? What, what, what's been some of your experience when you've spoken up, when somebody's spoken up for you, or how would you like people to, to help you? I mean, it could be around being just being Jewish. Yeah. Well, I was I, the first thing that came to mind, but I'm conscious of not wanting to be like, I'm a white person who speaks out in this like martyr way because I make a lot of mistakes all the time. But I think we talked and touched on the joking aspect and racial joking and it being this like, I'm not racist, I'm just telling a funny joke. Or that's not actually how I, what I feel. This is just a funny joke. And I think that those subtleties are so important to interrupt. Um, to acknowledge and then to have a conversation around because mm -hmm. there are opportunities for conversation. And I really appreciate you sharing that, like starting with your within your own community yeah. um, because I think that's so, so important. Um, yeah, I think just thinking about that, this idea of, of acknowledgement and interrupting and thinking about the ways in which there are subtleties that I accept and normalize around um, 
like rape culture or sexism mm-hmm. or anti-Semitism in ways that I don't even realize that are important, yes, for me to, to acknowledge and, and interrupt, but also to, to call on friends to be like, hey, that made me really uncomfortable. Like, can you say something? You know, if it's someone who's making a sexist comment and I call on like a, a cis male friend to be like, hey, you have power in this situation. Like, can you say something? Or if it's an anti-Semitic comment calling on someone who might not be Jewish to be like, can you say something? That actually made me really uncomfortable. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I think it takes practice for people too, mm-hmm. and just interrupting. Yeah, and it's hard the first time you do it. Mm-hmm. I, I still remember when when I was in high school, and I wanted to. I promised myself I'm going to call somebody out if they say um, that's gay. That's cool. And. <laughs> yeah. The first time you do it, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I do workshops at companies, I just have people choose a word. Just pick one word that you're going to practice using when you experience something that's going to go by so quickly. In a split second, that moment is over. For you to be able to intervene and make an impact in somebody's, uh, somebody's life, so that culture of your company, it goes by so quickly. But you could do it. It could be just a simple word like, wow. If somebody says something inappropriate, just say, Wow, did you say that? <laughs> Something really casual, but just stop in that moment and, and let people know that that wasn't okay. And so I think it takes practice, but it also takes intentional, conscious effort on people's part to be able to intervene. Yeah. Well, and that's also, when you talk about whether to intervene or not intervene, that's also a, a privilege thing. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and here's going to be my intensity to even think, when you're aware, to even think you have a choice to not say something is BS. Mm-hmm. Because now how you say something is based on the results that you want. But you cannot choose to not say something. But we must say something, and we also have to let people know the support that we need from them. And the reality is, even though I said that it would really help your mother um, to know a black person, but at the same time, a white person will listen to a white person more than they will listen to a black person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a straight person, because some of my best allies mm-hmm. have been straight people mm-hmm. speaking up yeah. yes. to other straight yes. people yes. about LGBT issues. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, the best people are people who have been homophobic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. th- there's a group called Life After Hate. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And... They're a group of people. The guy who started it was a leader of a white supremacist group. <laughs> and he has a whole story, mm-hmm. but he started this organization, Life After Hate. And what they do is they bring people out of these right-wing white groups. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the things he does is he said that if he's working with a Holocaust denier, he'll introduce them to a Holocaust survivor. But he has a whole, I mean, a whole thing because of his experience because he says, they're going to listen to me. They're, they're going to listen to him because they're not going to listen to me. Sima Lieberman, Jewish lesbian. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, it doesn't work that way. Um, so we're getting ready. We're getting to the close of our show. I have so enjoyed having the two of you on my show. I really want you to come back for another show. And before we end, I would like you to each have a chance to say some closing words. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much, Sima, for having us. And thank you, Michelle. It's really wonderful to speak with you. you. And thank you for all your insight and everything. Um, I think that, like, this is such important work. It's so important. And I love the framing of of everyday conversations because I think, especially in my circles, it's regarded as either this, like, PC, we have to talk about it really seriously, or, like, theoretical, like – not in the realm of reality Mm -hmm. and so to have a framing of everyday conversations in a way that's real in a way that was fun like i had a great time chatting with you all um is so important so thank you for having us and thank you for talking yeah thank you both Uh, i really enjoyed my time here um and what a privilege to be able to talk about these things Well, you are I think my lasting thought is, you know, this stuff is is hard. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of emotional energy and labor for 
people to engage in this type of conversation and go deep. Um, so number one, I think taking care of ourselves to be able to continue yes. this because this we have a long journey ahead of us. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we we can just turn off because that's also a privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So I just want to encourage people to be vigilant and not normalize what we are experiencing every day and the 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 administration that we are working with or against. <laughs> so just think of this as a, as a journey um, for people and to continue having these conversations with both compassion and criticality. And I'd like to say thank you both for being on my show and spread the privilege. When you spread the privilege, then everybody can be privileged. But when you keep your privilege, then you're actually keeping other people down. And remember my motto, educate, don't annihilate. Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, signing off.